Devora Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, good morning, everybody. So I want to let everybody know that this class is being sponsored by uh, Javi Rose or Javi. Javi Rose, I didn't know you called yourself a Rosenzweig, and she's uh, sponsoring the class in memory of both her mother, Rebetzin Gittel Rosenzweig, whose fifth Yortzeit it is, and her mother-in-law, whose name was also Rosenzweig, Faye Rosenzweig, and it is her second Yortzeit. Both women selflessly and lovingly devoted their lives to their families. My mom, says Javi, Rebetzin Gitzel Rosenzweig, also devoted her life, together with my father, Rav Shraga Feibel Rosenzweig, to the Jewish community of Kitchener, where she was the Rebetzin for 36 years. Thank you so much for sponsoring, Javi, and may their neshamas have an aliyah. And Javi sponsoring this and, and next week's class in your memory. Uh, may their neshamas have an aliyah, and may they be a melitz yosher for their respective families. We also have another sponsor today, and that's Rhonda and Jean Marks. Hi, gals. If you're on, I hope you're there. And they are sponsoring in memory of, uh, respectively, the, the, her father and um, Jean's white, uh, husband, whose name was Shmuel Ben Ephraim, and his yards it was a couple of days ago. So may his neshama have an aliyah and the learning that we do today raise their neshamas and raise our own spirits. So before we go back into our topic of uh, what we've been talking about, which how bitachon can help eradicate or at least lessen jealousy and competitiveness, um, I just want to mention it's so interesting that the parshas that come out during this time always come out during the time of Hanukkah, and they tell the story of Yosef. And the only thing that I really wanted to bring up is at the end of the Parsha of Yosef, we actually have an incredible example of the relationship between Bitachon and Hishtadlut, which we've been talking a lot about, right? If you have Bitachon, how much efforts do you have to make? And when you make those efforts, uh, part of the idea of Bitachon is you have to realize that yes, you have to make the efforts, but the but the outcome has absolutely nothing to do with your efforts, okay? That down here in this world, of course, we live in a cause and effect world. And of course, when we do something, there's an effect. And that's one layer of things. But if we move up to a higher level of things, the Jewish idea is that you have to pay the tax. You have to make some efforts. That's the way God set up the world after the sin of Adam, Harishon. But at the same time that you're making those efforts, the true Baal Bitachon understands that Hashem is the one who's going to decide the outcome of my efforts. Whether I do a lot, whether I do a little, Hashem will decide. And the other part of this relationship, this dynamic between Hishtadlus and Bitachon is, you know, what we talked about is overdoing, doing too much Hishtadlus that the premise of this is that the more you rely and trust on in Hashem, the more you put your faith and trust in Him, the more He will do for you. 
Now, of course, we see this so clearly in the Hanukkah story, right? The Hanukkah story, the heroes of the Hanukkah story were people, the Hashmonayim, who literally, logically speaking, and in terms of cause and effect, had no chance against the Greeks. You know, they were this band of 12 men fighting against this incredible army, and everything was against them. But they basically said, we know this. This has nothing to do with us. We have no other, you know, we're up against a wall. We can't allow this to continue. And so we're going to go forward and put our faith and trust and reliance completely in the one who anyway fights all of our battles for us. Completely in the one who is capable of overthrowing a huge army, capable of overthrowing all of the Arab nations that banded against little Israel in 1948, soon after we were declared a state, right? These people trust in their chariots. These people trust in their horses. But we know as Jews that the only reason we've been around for all these thousands of years with the mightiest nations trying to destroy us is because Hashem saves us. Hashem swoops in and saves this tiny little people who never had a country, who never had an army really, and somehow against the greatest superpowers. You know, Germany most recently that tried to destroy us, we prevail. And that is only because Hashem wants us to. And again, when we put our trust in Hashem, Hashem says, I can do a lot for you. The more we trust, the more we have. And it's interesting that in this week's Parsha, at the very end, we know the story of Yosef, that Yosef, of course, is thrown into a pit by his brothers from the lowest place, he ends up again uh, sort of taken out of the pit only to be thrown back into jail, right, after the episode with Potiphar's wife. And there he is languishing in jail. He's been there for two years. Even in jail, he raises himself up. So we see, you know, how, how, how life and Yosef's life goes from the bottom of the pit up and down and up and down with the challenges of his great personality. And then basically at the end of the Parsha, he's, he's successfully told the dreams of the two prisoners in jail with him, right? The cupbearer and the baker. That the cupbearer is going to be restored back to his post. And the baker, unfortunately, is going to meet his imminent end. Uh, and it, it's basically three... Uh, that whenever uh, Paro would celebrate a birthday, that was the day that he would um, take prisoners out of jail and restore them, which actually Queen Elizabeth still today does that on her birthday. So this is not a, a uh, not this, this is an idea that goes way back to Paro and uh, lives on today. But the point is, the point is that um, what happens at the end of the Parsha the the Tsar Hamashkin, the wine steward, is being taken out. And as he's leaving, Yosef says to him, listen, don't forget to mention me to Paro. When you get back up to the palace over there, let him know, you know, about me and my dreams and how I predicted all of this. And not only does he say it once, he says, don't forget to tell Paro about me. And then he adds one more time, 
remember me to him. So he says this twice, Yosef. And actually what happens at the end of the Parsha, it says, yet the Chamberlain of the cupbearers did not remember Yosef, but he forgot him. Okay, well, if he didn't remember him, he obviously forgot him. Why do we need the double Lashem? Why do we need that twice? We know that the Torah is very sparing in its language. So the idea there, again, is that because Yosef asked twice, he was punished with two more years in jail. And why was he punished? So the rabbis, and this is a, you know, the, the rabbis have a really good time with this. But the whole question is, he was punished because he had a lack of bitachon. He was, he was missing. He was missing on some level, the level that he should have been on, somebody of his stature, somebody who had gone through what he had gone through and over and over again, seen Hashem save him. He should not have put any of his reliance on this low life, this cupbearer who was being restored and asking him to mention him to Paro. Now, you and I, okay, this would be considered normal hishtadlus. This would be considered that if you didn't, you're a fool, right? I mean, you have this opportunity to say, Put in a good word for me, by the way, right? Of course, I'm not depending on you. I'm depending on Hashem. But, you know, this is my normal efforts. You know, you're going up there. Make sure you say something about it. That would be considered normal for us. But for a Yosef Hatzadi, who, again, we have another principle in Torah, that the greater you are, right, the more Hashem inspects you. You know, the expression is, like a hair's breadth, like a, with a magnifying glass. And if there's any little schmeck of relying on this cupbearer and not Hashem, it's a problem because you are the foundation stone for the Jewish people for eternity. So your behavior has to be perfect, right? This is why if we go back when Sarah laughs, when the angels come and say she's going to have a baby, right? And she's in her 90s. And she makes a little laugh like, ha, impossible, right? Never going to happen. On her level, that was considered a lack of bitachon. And when she recognized that, we know later on she denies, right? She says, no, I didn't laugh. I didn't laugh because she realizes that on her level, a laugh like that, is a chink in the foundation stone, Leolam Va'ed, for the Jewish people, right? That she has to be, and so there's always repercussions in the smallest ways. I know when my kids were little, saying, well, why would I want to be great, Ima? You know, I don't want God inspecting me so closely. Like, why should we, like, you know, I don't want to grow too much. I don't want to get too great because that's a hard place to be. But of course, the flip side of it, which I would explain to them, is yes, it comes with a lot of responsibility and accountability, but it also comes with tremendous pleasure, right? The tremendous pleasure of being so connected to the one who is the source of all pleasures in the world, right? You like skiing, you want to be on the top of a mountain today and soar down that mountain. Well, that pleasure comes from Hashem who created the mountains and the snow and the, you know everything else that goes with it to be connected to the source of every single pleasure that's in the world. 
you know, for that, you know, you might not mind being scrutinized a little bit more carefully. And maybe that's part of the pleasure of the sense of your importance and, you know, how much you matter for good and for bad. Okay, so Yosef had to stay in jail. So just interesting, again, for a Yosef Atzadik, this kind of this was considered overdoing. For us, it would be normal. And that's why we have to ask ourselves in every situation, you know, where am I putting my trust? Who am I putting my trust into? Am I putting it into my own brains, my own uh, protexia, you know, my money, the doctors? And we can all have experiences like Yosef where, you know, we, we went to the best doctor. How many stories have you heard like this in your life, right? Only the best, the chief surgeon, the this, the that. And, you know, he leaves his instrument inside of you, you know. I mean, you know, he makes a mistake, right? He does some error. Or, you know, the your best friend who, you you know, you trusted and relied on for everything. And then you find out that, you know, they're telling secrets about you to somebody else. God forbid, what a terrible, you know, awakening. But that's when, and that's what Yosef Atzadik said, I have two years now to work on my bitachon, to realize that, yes, I was putting my faith in that butler. You know, while he, when he left, every hour that passed, Yosef was looking at his watch saying, I wonder if he said anything yet, like new like, how come I haven't heard anything yet? And you can imagine week after week after week of him thinking, uh, what's going on in there? Until he came to the realization that nothing is going on. And that's not where you put your trust. And when Hashem wants to take you out of jail, that's when he's going to take you out. Okay. Um, so let's go back to our class. And what we've been talking about, as I said, we've been talking about um, how we have this positive interdependence that we want to nurture and nourish as people who are as people who trust in Hashem, that nobody can take away from me anything that is mine, that nobody can take a slice of my pie. They can't take away my job, my shidduch, the money that I'm supposed to have, right? They cannot do that because Hashem has ordained what is for you and what is for me. And it's a, an illusion when we think that other people are taking away a piece of our pie. And therefore, a person who has this quality on the highest levels, we said, and, no, and we're not expected of this level. The Chazon Ish tells us how a person reacts, you know, when somebody uh, seems to be sabotaging them. You know, Ruvain opens up a store next to Shimon, a shoe store, right? And we talked about the different levels of how a person will naturally feel about that and how that lets you know where you're holding in terms of your bitachon, you know? Are you like, you can't sleep at night? You're just, you know, you're going to get that guy. You're going to make sure nobody goes into that store. You're going to, you know, whatever it is. In Toronto, it was interesting because up at, at I, I mean, years ago, up in uh, a plaza, I, I think on Clark, you know, Jews for Judaism 
opened up right next to Jews for Jesus. Literally, they were like right next door to each other. And of course, they did it very uh, strategically. And so when Jews would be walking into Jews for you know what, um, you know, Julius Sis would be standing outside going, wait a second, before you go in there to buy shoes, you might want to come in here first and let's have a, have a little class first and then you can do what you want. So that kind of uh, competition is good competition. Okay. Um, so again, betuffling is a continuum. It's not static. We get to know where we're holding by how we respond in these kind of situations. Like the Chazani said, a person can think they're a big ball of betuffling until somebody's stepping on your foot. You know, I thought I was the best speaker in town. I thought I gave the best classes. And I see somebody else get 60 people every morning or, you know, they're being asked to be the speaker at, uh, you know, at the base Yaakov dinner, whatever it is, whatever area that we feel is our expertise, that we feel we should be recognized in, that we feel is our domain. When somebody comes too close, how do we respond? Are they taking something away from me? Are they threatening me? Right? Okay. So, of course, we said the highest level is, you know, to help to help Shimon with the shoe store, to say, hey, like that dentist we talked about in Israel. Here, let me t tell you how to open up a business in Israel. Here, you, you know, you can open up on my street. You can open up on my block. It doesn't bother me because I know that uh, Hashem is going to give me exactly what, I, what I'm supposed to get. And so this does not bother me at all. I just want to say, again, it's, it, it, in Hebrew, it's, Ein Adam nogea muchan bechavero. Ein Adam, there is no person. Nogea, who can, who can take, has anything, who can take anything, muhan that's prepared for me, bechavero, that, that's prepared for me, that can take anything away from me. Okay, so let's continue. So it's okay if I let people know, you know, about my cleaning lady and my nail place and, you know, which diet I'm on and the recipe that everybody loved that, you know, I made. I shouldn't feel threatened by other people because, again, your success is my success. When you accomplish and you become great, I'm thrilled, just like any normal mother is for a child. Right? They always say, be careful who you tell your good news to because the only one who's really happy for you is your mother or maybe your sister if you have a good relationship, right? Now, that's very cynical, I know. But, you know, it's telling us something about human nature and why we don't, we, you know, we believe in being sti'ut. We believe in being modest and covering over, if you like, even our good fortune because we don't want to arouse jealousy in others. And we don't want to put an ayin hara, as we say, right? Poo, poo, poo on our good fortune because people are naturally jealous and competitive. Right, but when you live in a society that um, feeds into this and nourishes this kind of competitiveness, it doesn't help us work against it, which is what the Torah and the Jewish view would say. You have to work against it. You have to be happy for other people's successes because you have to realize, Kol Yisrael Yeshlehem, sorry, Kol Yisrael Arevim Zebaza, or you know, Gufechad Velevechad. 
the neshama echad, that if it's not good for you, it's not good for me. That if you're in pain, I'm in pain. And this is the way Hashem also responds to us, right? When you feel the pain of others, Hashem feels your pain more acutely. When you celebrate the successes of others, Hashem wants to give you more success. Okay? And the idea here is that when you share your good fortune um, with others, when you use what you have to help others, it also shows, it demonstrates your bitachon. Okay? There's a natural correlation between emuna and chesed, belief in God, realizing that everything comes from him, and your ability to do chesed, to do kindness for other people. Because chesed is a natural outgrowth of having more emuna. In other words, you're saying, you know what, Hashem has given me so much good fortune, I want to share it with others. Right? It's like in last week's Parsha, we said when Esav and Yaakov met each other, Esav, you know, was sending gifts ahead and, uh, you know, sorry, Yaakov was sending gifts ahead to Esav to, you know, placate his brother. And uh, Esav says, at first he pretends he doesn't want it, but we know the truth, that somebody who's kulo materialism never has enough. Never. It's like salt water, Shlomo HaMelech tells us that the more you drink, the thirstier you get. Or as he says, he who has 100 wants 200. And back to our class on Simcha, we know that if you're not happy with 100, you certainly ain't going to be happy with 200. Or 300, or 400, because the work of being Sameach Bechelko has nothing to do with how much you have or don't have. It has to do with a mindset. And a shift in understanding what happiness is, which is all about your machshabot, not about your material possessions. Once you have what you need, you know, food, water, air, and someone to blame, you don't really need much, <laughs> much else than that. Okay? So, anyway. Um, but the idea of somebody who feels like they're overflowing, right? Asav answered, Yaakov said, Yeshli Rav. Yeah, I have a lot. But I could get, I could have some more. I don't mind, uh, you know, I don't mind having a little more. Whereas, of course, Yaakov says, Yeshli Hakol. I have everything I need right now at this moment. Whatever I have, including those little Pachim uh, Katanim that I went back over the river for, I've got absolutely everything that I need right now to achieve my mission in this world. Yeshli Hakol, by the way, in Birkat Hamazon, that's why we say the name Avram Yitzchak Yaakov, Bakol Mikol Kol. It corresponds back to our Avo, that they all felt they had everything. Nothing was missing. God gave me what I need to accomplish my mission in this world. I don't need your pizza pie. I don't need what you have. Unless there's a real need for it because of your own avoted Hashem, then I'll daven for it. But it has to be coming from the right place. Otherwise, I have everything I need to accomplish my mission. Not yours, not somebody else's. My unique mission, God gives me everything I need at the moment, at the time, you know, to accomplish. So somebody who feels that they are overflowed 
with gratitude, as we started the class with, even though it wasn't recorded, sorry, um, you know, that somebody who feels this gratitude of uh, everything that I have comes from Hashem directly, like with an envelope with hearts on it, sealed with a kiss. So what applies to him is this idea of Dishanta Vashem and Roshi Kosi Rivaya. My cup is overflowing, David HaMelech says. And by the way, that's a very Jewish thing that when we fill up our Kiddush cup at the beginning of Shabbos, you don't fill it up three quarters. You don't fill it up, you know, oh, so, oh, too bad. I don't have any more grape juice left. Oh, well. The cup should be filled to the very, very top, right? You could actually water it down if you don't have enough grape, grape juice or wine. But the idea is your cup should be, it's a cup of bracha. When you fill up your cup to wash your hands for bread, same idea. You know, there are people who come, they fill the cup up like, you know, like this much to wash their hands. And I say, come on, fill it up. Because the idea is the cup is a cup of bracha. You want the water to be flowing out of the cup. And Havdalah, of course, we make the wine come out of the cup because we're saying to Hashem, we want our brachas to overflow. But a person with Amuna and Bitachon feels that I have so much. The wine spilling over onto my plate, I want it to spill over onto your plate too. I want to share my largesse with you. You know, my father, Baruch Hashem, he was a, he was a, about Sadaka and he, you know, he used to teach us his lessons about Sadaka. And one of the things that he used to say, which was very profound as a kid, you know, he would say, the only money that I really have is the money that I gave away. That that money's always safe. It's not going to go up or down. <laughs> it's never going to be taken away from me. I actually wrote a poem. Um, way back in 1984, I think, when I was first becoming more interested in my Yiddishkeit, and I don't know if I've ever read it to anybody, but it, it, it serves very well here. So it's called Nothing Belongs to Us. And it goes like this. We come into this world with nothing, and we go out the same way. The only things we take with us are those things we gave away. The kindness that we did and the charity that we gave, the act of loving others with no selfish thoughts or pay. And when we leave this world of one thing we are assured, our fame, though not the earthly kind, in heaven will be secured. Okay, not bad. Thank you. I don't know if I had a po poetic epiphany since that time, but Okay, it's there latently somewhere. Okay, anyway, so that's the idea that Rabbi, Rabbi, um, Rabbi Volbe in his book, Ale Shor, says that there's a connection between Amuna and Chesed and Hashkacha Pratis, divine providence. You know, that the things, divine providence, meaning that what you have in your life that Hashem gave you, that you see it as gifts, as blessings that you want to share with others. So you're not threatened by other people's success. You're not threatened by their looks, by their perfect children. Oh, their children are so perfect. 
you know, by their incredible, you know, they're always so neat and tidy. You know, I remember somebody told me about a woman in, in Montreal who has Kaninahara 21 children. I know it's incredible. And she's a, a shadchan on the side. But the way somebody described her incredible um, CEO type of skills with this family is that, you know what? And I've never ever seen any of her sons need a haircut. You know, like they're always perfectly, you know, okay, very nice. Or that it reminds me of another friend of mine who was one of 12, right? And she says that she remembers as a kid, she was standing next to her mother. She's the oldest of 12. And her mother was talking, to, and her mother was a, a doctor too, okay? She was a radiologist. And, and anyway, uh, and she said, um, she was talking, you know, her mother was talking to a woman and the woman she was talking to had 13 kids. So her mother said to the woman with 13, how do you do it? You know, okay. Just that little, you know, straw that could break the camel's back, I guess, you know. Um, anyway, I'm having a good time. I hope you are. Okay. I can't hear you laughing. It's terrible. Um, so Hashem gives me everything. And we have these two brachas every morning in our morning brachas, right? We have 15 blessings that we say every morning, which correspond to the 15 steps that were in the, in the temple. And Shir HaMa'alot, those psalms that are also 15, by the way. There's a significance to the number 15. It escapes me right now. Um, but anyway... So we say two prayers, one after the other. We say that Hashem gives me everything. Uh, sorry, we say. Um, oh. Anyway, we basically say that you prepare the steps of man. And then right after that, we say, that I have everything I need. And I've said this word before, but I just love it. That that bracha that we say that Hashem, you give me everything I need, right? Something that we've been discussing. That was the bracha that originally people would put on their shoes because your shoes are so important. And in the olden days, if you did not own a pair of shoes, boy, that was really a status of being completely powerless because where can you go without shoes? How far can you go? right? So to have a pair of shoes, even now I was reading in the paper of all these refugees running away to Venezuela, you know, and, and a columnist picked up on the shoes of the little kids that they were wearing. You know, how could they run away? How could you get from Ethiopia to Israel, the people who went over the mountains without a pair of shoes? Okay, the point is the shoes are very important. We used to put them on and they would record they would be the idea of that you give me absolutely everything I need, beginning with my shoes. And Rabbi Pesa Krohn said that if you wear a pair of shoes that are not your size, you wear a pair that's too big for you, well, my goodness, it, you, know, you might walk a little bit. Everybody pictures their kid wearing daddy's shoes. Everybody has a picture like that, right? Or mommy's high heels, you know? So how far are you going to get like that? And the opposite, if you have a pair of shoes that are pinching you or way too high or they're just not comfortable, 
You know, you're going to be taking them off and walking in your stockings home from whoever's party you were at. And Rabbi Pesa Krohn says, that's why you put on your shoes when you say that God gave me everything I need, that my shoes are perfectly fit for me. And it's only in my own shoes that I can walk the distance that I need to walk. I may get a few steps in other people's shoes, in shoes that don't fit me, in shoes that don't make sense for me, but I will not be able to reach my goal. I'll be too focused, other focused on what everybody else has. And I need it. And you know, whenever we start feeling this way, I found this in my own life. It's usually because I have to up my ruchnius. You know, when I start thinking, oh, why don't I have that? Oh, why does she get to go there? Oh, you know, I need that. Oh, it really bothers me that, you know, we don't have this or we need this. You know, if you really check yourself, that monster rears its ugly head very often to say, you know what, honey bun? You need to start changing your thoughts and becoming a little bit more spiritually focused. And many people do that. They do that as they get older when they realize, you know what? It's very nice to have. It's very wonderful. But as I read recently, Rabbi Victor Miller in his book on Bittachon, he says, there's nowhere in the Torah that says it's a mitzvah to be rich. There's nowhere in the Torah that it says it's a mitzvah to have way, way more than you need. Okay, it's fine. It's good to have. We don't say it's not a mitzvah to be poor. As my rabbi told me very early on in my Balchuva career, it's not a mitzvah to suffer. You know, nobody goes looking for these things. Certainly having what you need and feeling a certain well-being and, and, and not having to worry about, about finances, that is a wonderful place to be. That is the ideal. Actually, one of my sons told me, it's ideal to be comfortably middle class in Judaism because having a lot comes with a lot of expectation and accountability. And we know it can be ruinous. And having too little is also considered a test, right? The test of wealth is you'll forget God and say, who needs you? I, I got enough money. I run the world. I don't need you for anything. And the test of poverty, it says, is that you'll come to steal, right? You'll be so obsessed with trying to get your needs met that that might be your danger. That might be your test. So my son once told me, that actually Judaism says it's great to be just in the middle and to recognize all the blessings of not having to worry and not having to keep up with the Schwartzes, you know? <laughs> so all of that. Good. We got a real laugh there. Excellent. I'm going to take this on the uh, show. Can I just say one thing? Sure. Can, I, can I say one thing about shoes, Devora? Yes, go ahead. Okay. When you talk about shoes, yeah. what comes to my mind, I don't know if this is appropriate or not, is during the Holocaust, they didn't really have shoes. Some of them, they had horrible shoes. They didn't fit them. Um, at, the end, at the end of the war, my mother had no shoes. Her stockings, they were on the death march, and her stockings were stuck to her skin. And... It was just really, I mean, 
Somebody said that if you didn't have shoes in the Holocaust, you were finna, you weren't surviving. People would sleep on their shoes. They would sleep in their beds, hiding I their know, shoes. But they didn't always have shoes. Okay, but I'm just saying that was a big, um, a big. At the end of the war, her stockings were stuck to her skin wow. of her feet. Wow. And she ended up being paralyzed on the whole right side of her body. Oh my God. Like, yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, okay. so shoes, yeah, shoes are really important, yes. Yes, so thank you, Harriet, for that. There's a lot of Sorry, people. sorry to put that in. I don't know, there's a lot of people in this class that are children of Holocaust survivors, and you don't have to be to, to recognize, um, you know, what it you means. You know, we, I think that what you say is so important. We have so many comforts. We have so many amazing things in our life. Mm -hmm. And I think people are, a lot of people are just taking it for granted, yeah. like complaining about do. this, complaining about that. But really, we have so much. So those kind of stories that you just shared with us put things in perspective for you sure. Know, even, now during, even now during COVID, yeah. we're in our warm houses. We have enough food. I mean, really, when you think about it, okay? Yeah, yeah you're right. This is a, uh, we have a lot of first world problems, as people say, you know, I, I have yeah. my nail polish just chipping, you know, we've got a lot of first world problems, like, but unfortunately, that is our generation too, that that's our challenge, that is our challenge. So every generation has its challenges. And the challenge of our generation is to get some perspective on how fortunate and to not be chasing after the illusions that are so much a part of our generation. But if you, we have a few minutes left, so I want to go on to another idea okay. a little bit differently. It's all connected, but thank you for sharing, Harriet. Okay. Um, so the idea is when we see something that someone has, or we feel threatened by someone's success, we need an image that we can hold on to. Because again, we're not responsible for that primary response. It's interesting because uh, Viktor Frankl, who was a Holocaust survivor himself and, and created the uh, psychological practice called logotherapy, which is based on the idea that people who survive are people who have meaning in life. He has a famous book called Man's Search for Meaning. And he said the Holocaust survivors who were most likely to survive were those who attached meaning to their own lives and the lives of the people around them. And basically he says that the uh, space between stimulus and response is where a person has free will. But I guess I would argue with him based on what I've learned from Rav um, Bachya and Rav Volbe and other Muslim masters. And for me, what was really, was really a very freeing idea which is that that first response, that primary response that we have, we're actually not considered to be responsible for. Because, you know, back to Marlene's question about can we change our home air, we can slowly chip away at the things that are not good about us, and we can get to a place where our primary response is absolutely perfect. But this Musser idea that you're not responsible for your primary response, but that really your free will lies in your secondary response, right? Yosef might have made a mistake by saying, remember me to the 
to the to the paro let him know about me right some commentaries say it was okay that he said it once that was fine right his primary response was okay then but then he repeated himself that's not that was no good okay so the idea is then he spent two years working on himself to make himself into a person where under any condition possible his primary response Sorry, Harriet, can you mute yourself just because there is, oh, maybe you are muted. You are. Somebody isn't muted. Okay. Um, so to make ourselves into the idea that our, our primary response is our first and greatest response. But again, the Musser people say, you're really not responsible. Your free will doesn't really kick in until your secondary response. In other words, um, you know, what are you going to do with what just happened? Are you going to remain angry? Are you going to remain resentful? Are you going to take revenge? Are you going to say, well, you know, I was right for the way I behaved and they were wrong? Or are you going to examine yourself? Um, Renee, dear honey, your, your camera's on and we can see everything that's going on. Good. Uh, can you turn it off or sit down? Because we're all getting dizzy. Oh, sorry for calling you out, but okay. Anyway, um, so as I was saying, yeah. So between our, our responses, okay. So how do we move from regesh to seichel? Remember we said that whenever we are triggered, we are triggered emotionally, right? Somebody said something. Somebody did something. I don't have what I want. I see somebody else's car. I see somebody looking better than I do. She lost a hundred pounds and I still got, you know, 300 to lose. I can't take it, right? I just got to stay home. I'm just, I was born jealous. I just was born green. Like I can't help myself. And some people, unfortunately, aren't born that way. And it is a terrible thing. But they get credit, for working on themselves by repeating the mantra, nobody can take anything from me. I'm whatever they have, they need it. I don't need it. It's their shoes. It's not my shoes. Blah 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 blah. We get credit for working on that. That's where our our free will. That's where our bechira chofshi. That's where the humanity that we all share makes us different than the animals. We do change. We are required to change. We are required to challenge ourselves in those areas that are less than perfect responses. Okay? So how do we internalize what we are learning and integrate it into our lives? So in Tehillim, it says, David HaMelech says, that the one who trusts in Hashem, kindness will surround him. Okay? So the idea here is there are many circles around us. We stand in the middle of many concentric circles that can cause us to be happy. So circle one, let's say circle one that is the immediate um, circle, is the idea that, you know, when a person focuses on, I have so many good things in my life, I have so many blessings, so that is the circle where we work on appreciating the good in your life and realizing, as we said at the beginning, that it all comes from Hashem, that it has an address, that it's gift-wrapped and it has a source that 
specifically and personally is involved in our lives, knows exactly what we need, right? We said a lot of these definitions with bitachon, has all the resources to give it to us, wants to give us what we need, and put it into our toolbox for life, and can do it, right? And that's why we want to put our trust there. So circle two is less obvious. Circle two is all the things that I don't have. Okay, what does this mean? That part of my joy and bitachon has to include the fact that, ah, I'm so happy I don't have this, right? All the things that I don't have. Now, this is less obvious, okay? But this is the idea, again, of Eina Dam Nogea Muchan Lechavero, that nobody can affect what's coming to me and that what I have and what I don't have, we're going to what I don't have, is also tailor-made for me. So, you have to put both together, appreciating what you have and appreciating what you don't have. So, someone who has no bitachon, right, he sees somebody's car and he says, oh, I need a car like that. Um, but the person who uses both of these circles says, oh, I see someone has a car. I don't have that car. I obviously don't need that car because if I did, I would have it. Okay, everybody get this? So it says that you should celebrate the things that you don't have because they're teaching you something about what you don't need for your mission. You don't need it. They somehow do, right? For their soul's tikkun, for what their neshama needs to fix, God needed to give them a lot of stuff, a lot of money, a lot of beautiful things. But perhaps their tikkun is that in their last life, they squandered all their wealth. They didn't give anything to tzedakah. They lived only for themselves. And now God wants to see how are they going to use it this time around, right? Are they, are they going to have learned their lessons? Are they going to be in control of it or, or be slaves to it? Are they going to recognize that they're simply the treasurers to the money that Hashem put in their hands to administer on behalf of the king? Right? So people have their specific set of circumstances in life because there's some kind of soul mission that needs correction. That's the only reason any of us are all together here today in this world having this class because our souls had to come back, right? We believe in reincarnation. There's no such thing as any new souls today. We are all very, very old, old souls. Old King Cole was a merry old soul, right? <laughs> We're all merry old souls. <laughs> and, and yes, we have exactly what we need. That person was lots of money. Never. My gosh, you know, they've got a big tikkun to fix. And that person that, you know, was born with some kind of illness, Loa Lenu, on some level, they needed this. 
And when some person who, God forbid, had to go through a divorce or a child off the derech or any of the other situations in life that we cannot beat ourselves up for, proper way is to recognize that this has to do with my, this is something I don't need. Right? What other people have, I don't necessarily need it. Okay? The altar of Kelm says a person is always surrounded by sources of happiness all the time. Because the first circle is telling him what he has he should be grateful for. And the second circle is telling him to be happy um, that you don't have. Be happy that you don't need it. Okay, and the example that she gives is, you know, you see a bottle of vitamins sitting on a table at, at your friend's house, or you have a friend that takes, you know, 50 different vitamins every single morning, <laughs> right? And you say, wow, I'm so happy I don't need that. Or, you know, um, or you might be able to say, you know, you might say, okay, sometimes it's obvious, you say, you know, she needs it, so she takes it. I don't need it because I obviously don't need it. Wow, I'm so lucky that I don't need it, that I don't need to take vitamins, right? I'm so lucky that I feel strong and healthy without them, that food is enough for me. And a little vitamin D doesn't hurt, you know, <laughs> vitamin C in the winter, but that's it, okay? If I don't have it, it's very likely I don't need it. I can look at what others have as this bottle of vitamin. You know, for another example, I wish I were married, right? She met the right person and I haven't. Then maybe this year I'm supposed to accomplish something else, right? If I don't have it right now, then I don't need it right now because maybe there's something that I need to accomplish. I once saw in the Chobot HaLavavot, I believe it was in that same book, by Rabbi... Um, even Ben Pakuda, uh, where he actually says, and this was written thousands of years ago, that a woman who never marries, she should actually say, she should see the bracha in it, because he says it's obvious that Hashem freed you up. He gave you a lot of time that a woman who marries and has children does not have for most of her life to be able to develop yourself in other ways, to start a chesed organization, to become a doctor that services the religious community, a female doctor, that God obviously freed you up. And that's the way you should look at it. I don't need this. Now, again, we're talking about somebody who obviously years and years go by and they don't marry. So you have two choices. You can say, you know, why is she getting married? Why is she getting married? What's wrong with me? What's it? You know, and be bitter and upset and, 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 and turn into a nobody and a nothing. Or you can listen to Rabbi even Ben Pakuda, who says, see it as a gift. Obviously, Hashem wants you to accomplish something very different than the average bear. So that's the way to look at it. I don't need it. I don't need it. Aren't I lucky? Aren't I fortunate? Wow. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be making efforts towards what we need. Don't get me wrong. Okay? We have to be doing both at the same time. This is truth. Truth is, at the same time, I don't need it. If it is something that I feel I need, right? I need a job. <laughs> I need a shit up for my kid. 
I'm obviously going to make efforts to get that. But at the same time, I'm going to recognize that even these efforts and challenges that I have to go through are part of my mission. They're part of my learning curve. They're part of the way Hashem wants me to know how much are you relying on me? Because that is the bottom line for everything in this world. How much do we recognize the incredible amount of dependence we have to have on Hashem for everything in our lives? How much do we recognize that everything we have comes from Him as a free gift, as a matnafinam, not because we deserve it, not because we do more mitzvot than somebody else, not because we're better, but simply because Hashem wants to give us. And sometimes all it takes is for us to ask him for it. It's there, it's waiting for us. But he wants a relationship. He wants us to know, like we said, that it's not short-circuited, that we recognize we asked and we got it, that it came from him. It wasn't random, right? That is how we build a relationship with Hashem. I once asked my son, I said, you know, but people get stuff all the time without asking, right? I mean, you can be the biggest heretic, right? You can be Christopher Hawkins and not believe in God and figured out a whole intellectual theory that, you know, that many people believe in. And he's still getting stuff. How come? You know, God should cut him off. Now, obviously, we know there would be no free will if that's the way things work. But what my son said, I thought was so beautiful. He said, when you are, and, and this is from the Gemara, he didn't make it up. But he explained it. He said, when you ask for something from God and then you get it, he said, it's like eating at the king's table. It's the difference between being the waiter and serving or, you know, working in the barn. Or working here or there where, you know, yeah, of course God gives. He gives everybody. He's giving all the time. His, his essence is a constant flow of giving. If for one second God would decide to stop giving, the entire world and universe would disappear. The world was built on kindness, on chesed, chesed. You know, it is the foundation of everything that God is kulo chesed. And that we find our humanity, we find our tzalem elokim, our, that part of us, which is God, when we imitate God. We are meant to imitate him. The same way he does kindness, we do kindness. The same way he uh, is just, we need to be just. The same way he holds back his anger, we need to hold back our anger. This is all in Tamar Devorah, you know, a, a, a famous muster sefer written by the Ramchal, who also wrote Mesilas Yisharim which a lot of people study before Rosh Hashanah. The same way you forgive other people, God forgives you, right? We are supposed to imitate the way God is compassionate and he turns away from insult and he turns away from wrongdoing. We have to look away from others' wrongdoing. The same way that he tries to find a benefit of the doubt for us when we are tired, hungry, miserable, and we do things that are not proper according to the king's rules, and the rules of the palace, God overlooks it to the degree that we overlook this in other people, right? This is our class on Hakpada, which maybe one day I'll reteach um, on internal, getting rid of internalized anger and resentment. 
I know we're going over the time now, but we started a little late. For anybody who wants to leave, I'm not insulted, but I just like to go through a little bit more of this. So when do we use this? When do we use this idea, if I don't have it, I don't need it? We use it when something is out of my reach. I try to get it. I tried to get that Lexus. I tried to get that mansion on the bridal path, but my whole life fell apart, okay? It just wasn't worth it. My kids don't talk to me anymore. Nobody likes me. I'm sitting in this palace or, you know, and, and I, I've made so many enemies along the way. I've made so many people, you know, jealous and resentful and boy, have I had to cheat in business to get here, right? Or forget that scenario, even when it's all pure and in and, and, and the derech Hashem. I tried to reach it, and maybe I didn't get it. So you know what? The proper response of a bal bitachon, of someone who understands bitachon, is maybe I don't need it, because I should not be overdoing like this. I should not be sweating like this. I should not be tossing and turning at night if I have bitachon. Or maybe I don't need it right now. Maybe it's not the time. Maybe I have to get busy and build my life while I'm waiting for that perfect shidduch. And yes, take that course that I was thinking, well, I'm not going to take that course because I could get married at any moment. So like, you know, I'll just continue being, you know, the nursery school teacher's assistant instead of getting the degree towards becoming a teacher. Because I'm going to get married very soon, so who knows, you know? No, go, go for it. Because maybe not, now is not your time, right? I always, I have this thing on my fridge that I live by, or I hope I do, or I try to. And I guess it sums it up. It says, Hashem always does the best to those who give the choice to Him. To those who leave the choice to Him. Which basically means you don't, it doesn't mean you don't do but you know when to bow your head and say, Hashem, you know better. Hashem, you know what I need. Hashem, you know when the right time is. Hashem, you know why I don't need this. I trust you. Take me on, take, you know, take me for a ride. The Chazon Ish used to say about his life that he feels that he's always on a pleasure trip. Okay. That it doesn't matter, you know, He's in a car and he's got a driver. And it doesn't matter where the driver takes him, whether it's into like Harlem, you know, for a few days, or into Forest Hill, or whether he's going, you know. But he said, I always felt like I was on a pleasure trip. But that feeling of being on a pleasure trip has to do with our mindset that everywhere Hashem is taking us is exactly where we needed to go to deepen our relationship, to learn about ourselves, to recognize what our tikkun is in life, what we need to correct, what we need to fix. Now, of course, you know, we can cause Hashem to take us on certain detours, which we would have hoped we didn't have to go down. But the Balbi Tachon says, if I'm here and I'm seeing the view from here, and that's what's outside my window on this pleasure trip, then that is exactly what I needed to see, experience, and go through in order to be able to become the self that I want to give back to Hashem at the end of 120 years. Who I am is God's gift to me, 
what I become, who I become, is my gift to God. And when we travel through life, letting Hashem be in the driver's seat, saying, teach me and take me where I need to go. I just want to get more knowledge of you. I just want to have more connection to you. I just want to be in relationship with you, recognizing that everything I have is from you and everything I don't have is also from you. And it is a gift, both of them. You know, God forbid somebody has fertility issues, right? Your best friend has five kids and you haven't had one yet. Yeah, it's a very difficult thing to be able to get to a point where you can say, I don't have a child right now. I guess I don't need a child right now. I've done a lot of different kinds of efforts and it's not happening and it's making me miserable. Maybe I need to embrace what I don't have somehow. Okay? Maybe I should be working on deepening my relationship with my husband. Something that's very difficult to do when you're busy raising children. Right? Unfortunately, many marriages fall apart in midlife when husband and wife re-meet each other after the kids leave the house and they go, ah, who are you? I'm married to you. Right? Because they spent their whole life living through their children. And it was easy to ignore the most important and crucial relationship of your life. And we're all guilty as women. We all can get into that funk. And then we have to spend a lot of time rebuilding that marriage relationship. So a woman who says, you know what? Maybe it's now my time to really deepen my relationship with my husband that my friends don't have in the same way. Okay? All right, we're almost finished. I'm just going to finish this last point. So vitamins are for a deficiency. The reason my friend takes 100 vitamins is she needs this. If I don't have it, I don't need it. So we can anchor this idea with our vitamin imagery. Vitamins are appropriate for her, not for me. For me, it could be an overdose for my body. I have enough B12. I don't need to be taking magnesium. I don't need, you know, I get worried. I hear other people taking stuff. Oh, maybe I need it. Oh, wait a second. I feel fine. Let me thank God for the fact that I don't need it. Okay? Somebody's wearing a beautiful dress. And you think, oh, I wish I had that dress. But on you, that dress is going to look horrible. How many dresses do we have to try on, ladies, in the store until we find one that looks good on me? Right? And it looks so good on the hanger. And it looks so good on that lady across the way who's wearing it, right? Oh, let me go get that one. I got to try that one. Oh, my gosh. Why doesn't it look like, like this on me? Why does it look so good on her? Because it's not yours. You don't need that dress. It's not your dress. Okay. There's another um, image that I'll tell you. It says that, you know, let's say you see somebody uh, has, has a hand that has six fingers on it right? Or, you know, you see somebody's finger and it's so beautiful and you say, you know, I'd love to take her finger and attach it to my hand. Okay, the idea is, is that if you would have six fingers, it would look like a deformity. You don't need that sixth finger because it's superfluous, right? As much as you might like it or you think it's beautiful from a distance or you want it, you want that dress, you want that husband, you want that car. For you, it's a deformity. It's like having a sixth finger. Okay? Um, 
But our primary response is that we feel jealous. We feel threatened. We feel comp competition. But our secondary response is, which is the place where we are responsible, where we have free will now, where this bitachon muscle is supposed to begin flexing, right? Is to work on bitachon and say, I obviously don't need this. And I can have simcha knowing about all the things I don't need. So again, we have two circles of simcha around us. The first can be accessed, both of them can be accessed to increase happiness and to decrease worry and anxiety and jealousy. The first is, wow, look at everything Hashem gave me. She'asali kol sarki, I have everything I need. And part of having everything I need is that I have everything I don't need. If I don't have it, I don't need it. Aren't I lucky? Aren't I lucky? I don't need that car. I don't need that house. I don't need those, right? And if I do need it, okay. If I think I need it, there's nothing wrong with trying to get it. But if it doesn't happen, and it's clearly not meant for you, it doesn't have your address on it, then obviously you didn't need it, and you don't need it. And it's not worth the sweating and the tossing and turning. So get busy and look out the window and figure out what it is that you are supposed to be taking pleasure from, what it is that you are supposed to be recognizing in the fact that you don't need it. All right, that's the class. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And uh, if you want to listen again, you can access the class on um, Accessing Your Best Self on any of the podcast stations. And anybody who wants to sponsor a future class, can um, email me at devoravale at yahoo.ca, devora with an H at the end. Thank you to our sponsors today and um, 